You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our text today is from Colossians 2, beginning in verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. So we, we moved to this building about a year ago, and when we were first here, we used the, the Old Testament passage talking about the children wandering in the wilderness, following the pillar of fire and the cloud. And I read a J.R.R. Tolkien quote, but only part of it. So I'm going to read that portion again, but then I'm going to read the second part of the stanza that I think is really uh, relevant to this passage today. He said this, all that is gold does not glitter, not all those who wander are lost. And then he says this, the old that is strong does not wither, deep roots are not reached by the frost. And as I read that again this week, I was thinking that's, that's an interesting tension. We are a wandering people. I was just talking to someone trying to remember how many places we've been in the last 15 years. I can't even think about it on the top of my head. But I do know that even in a wandering exile existence, we have the ability to have deep roots in Jesus Christ, deep roots in the gospel, amen? So a phrase that I heard years ago that has stuck with me is this, that the future is ancient. The future is ancient. And you can probably see the way that this has influenced my life in some ways and even influenced our church. In a world that is obsessed with the new and the relevant And the innovative, you're going to hear words like that even in the church, like we're new and we're relevant and we're innovative. We are constantly restless for what's next. We are willing to discard the old in order to pursue the next new thing. And in this world that is constantly looking for something fresh, something new, the Bible offers us an entirely different direction. And it's that the way forward is actually the road back. And not simply just into the past. There are a lot of things from our past. There are a lot of things from Christian history that we just want to leave in the past that we do not want to return to. I don't mean the past in general, but I mean returning to things of first importance, to our first loves, 
In fact, that's what the word repent in the Bible means. It means to return. To, to, to call someone to repentance is to simply say, you are moving away from where life and freedom is found, so turn back, return to where it's found. Come back home. In the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, we read this. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. The old, well-worn paths. And I find that interesting because it's not the new that makes you new. It's the old that makes you new. The old that is strong does not wither. For the Colossians, some of them here in the church at this time began to believe that progress in life and progress in their spiritual growth meant that they needed to move on to the higher level of spirituality, beyond the foundational teachings of Jesus, the cross, the empty tomb, and upward and on. And essentially it was this, yes, Jesus is great, yes, Jesus is important, he is how we get started in this whole thing, but now for the people who are serious about growing, who want to be serious about their their spirituality. We need to move beyond that basic, simple Jesus stuff and into the, quote, the deep stuff. Adding elements of Judaism, Greek philosophy, local temple practices, mysticism. It was this, like, complicated religious mixtures of all of the prevalent religious practices and kind of mushing it in with Christianity. But Paul is calling them to return, to repent. And he says this in verse six, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Or as one translation reads, just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so go on living in him, in simple faith. In simple faith. Now, what do I mean by simple faith? I do not mean shallow faith. Paul describes Jesus as the one in whom are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We are called to plumb the depths into the mystery of Jesus Christ, stretching our imagination, growing in our knowledge and wisdom. Simple is not um, shallow, but by simple I mean single focused, singularly focused on Jesus. I read this interesting thing called, uh, I read about this interesting thing called complication bias. And when I read it, I was like, oh my gosh, we do this all the time. Complication bias has to do with the tendency to overcomplicate things that are actually very simple. And even when something's simple, what our brain concludes is it can't be that simple, so we proceed to make it more complicated. <laughs> we all know someone in our lives that does that, and probably we are that person that does that. It can't be that simple, so let's make it complicated. So they thought, it can't be that simple. Christ alone, fulfilled, complete in him, it is finished? I don't think so. And so they added layers of rituals and secret teachings and religious regulations, Jewish regulations like circumcision and so on, so that the way forward in Jesus became like a labyrinth, a complex, complicated labyrinth. Now, I 
was driving to the Bay Area yesterday and I passed by like 20,000 corn mazes that are popping up everywhere for the, the Halloween season. So I want you to imagine in your mind the Christian experience constantly feeling like a corn maze. You turn the corner, you think you're making headway and you're like, where am I? I'm lost. And then you, make, you go back and you think you're returning to where you were, but then you don't know where you are. You can't see over the hedge. You can't see where you're going. You're all twisted up. You're all mixed up. What is this even about? But here's the deal. This complication not only makes life unnecessarily difficult, but as the Bible shows us, it makes life in Christ impossible. And it's not what God intended for our faith, this complicated mix And while the path of Jesus may be hard, and it may be narrow, and it may at times even be lonely, Paul insists that the path of Jesus always remain simple, singularly focused on Christ. So let's look at this passage under three headings. What we're going to do is we're going to look at rooted in the faith, rejecting falsehood, and then finally raised into freedom. Let's look first at rooted in the faith. Look with me again in verse 7. Rooted and built up in him, speaking of who? Okay, great. Rooted and built up in Jesus and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So I saw an article, I was scrolling through the news, and I saw an article that caught my eye, and I had to read the article, and it was titled, the title was this, Astronauts' Blood Shows Signs of DNA Mutation Due to Space Flight. That sounds really interesting, right? Like, what? So I read on, and the more uh, they research, you know, space flight and going into space or whatever, the more scientists realize how unfit we are for space travel. Who would have thought we were, like, meant for Earth and not outer space, you know? This is crazy. Um, But what they found is things like blood mutation that occurs. Don't ask me how. It just happens, science. Um, Atrophy, right? The body, as it's just sitting in zero gravity, it begins to break down. You lose your strength, the muscle mass, the mental toll of just being in the tin can out in the middle of nowhere. The strain, severe strain on your body with all these like G-forces as you're being propelled into space or re-entry through the whatever sphere. And then the anguish of trying to figure out how to use the bathroom when everything wants to float. I bet you never thought about that, right? Things just wanting to come back up at you. We were not designed to soar or to fly or to reach beyond. It's not in our makeup. It's not in our design. We were designed to be grounded. Do a little deep dive this week on the science of grounding, where you like take your shoes off and you put your feet on the grass. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. And it's not hard to see how our quest to always be reaching beyond has had negative impacts on our civilization today. Uh, A quote I read earlier this year, an author says this, Americans reached for the stars as they withered their roots. They inhabited space, but they lost any sense of place. We are so busy going up there, but we lost, like, what's here, what's now. And there are a lot of illustrations that describe what the life of a believer ought to be. And the Bible gives us these amazing illustrations and analogies for Christians. But the interesting thing is that rarely and maybe even arguably never does the Bible refer to Christians as flying objects. 
In fact, we read this in the Old Testament book of Obadiah. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set up among the stars, from there the Lord says, I will bring you down. The analogy of soaring like an eagle sounds pretty amazing, but it's actually a picture of pride. Arrogance, deception of people trying to dwell in a realm that we just never were designed for. Instead, one of the most common illustrations for the Christian life, it's not sensational, by the way, it's being a plant. You are a plant. Think about all the ways that the the, the Bible describes Christians. Branches, trees, olives, oaks, wheat, fruit, figs. And like plants, in order to grow fruit, in order to flourish, in order to display the beauty that we were designed to display, here's a crazy thought. We need to be grounded. We need to be grounded. And specifically what Paul is saying here is that we need to be grounded in the soil of the gospel of Jesus. That's where we were designed to grow and to flourish and to remain planted In fact, the word here in Colossians for rooted indicates a once and for all planting. We are planted in Jesus through faith. The Bible describes it as that we are united with him through faith. But the way that we continue to grow in our faith, the way that we continue to abound is then by causing those roots to go deeper down into Christ. We read this in Jeremiah chapter 17. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water, and look at this imagery here, that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when the heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries, sounds uh, pretty relevant here, in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. So trust is pictured here as stretching and straining towards the grace that is always readily available to us in the presence of God. Trust is confidence in his grace and his mercy and his power. It's it's about remaining near to the waters of God's spirit and relying upon him to make our lives flourish. But I have to mention this here because we we see a picture of stability, a tree planted. Paul describes us as being established, firm, fixed on this firm foundation. But I need to mention this, that being established in the faith does not come by the amount of our faith. We are not established by the amount of our faith. We are not established by the intensity or the firmness of our faith. That's not what's meant by being rooted in faith. The strength and the stability that's being described here comes from the object of our faith, where we are grounded, who we are grounded in. And so Paul tells us to remain rooted and grounded in the faith. We often talk about my faith, our faith, but the truth is our faith ebbs and flows. Some days we wake up confident in who God is. Other days we're like, are you even real? 
It's not found in the intensity of our faith or the strength of our faith, but the object of our faith, the timeless, tested, true confession that Jesus is Lord. What Paul is saying is remain rooted in the fertile soil of the gospel, the timeless gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? You still with me? All right, just remind me from time to time. Thank you. Uh, Let's look secondly at rejecting falsehood. Rejecting falsehood. Now, today we think that, we like to think of ourselves as independent thinkers. Um, No one believes that they are easily swayed. It's interesting, even people in cults don't believe that they're in cults. No one likes to believe that they're easily swayed. No one likes to think that they're impressionable. Everyone deep down believes like my decisions are my own. My preferences are totally original to me. My opinions come directly from me. And what we do is we consider our own inner voice to be the only real authority in how we are to live. But here's the main problem with this. It's just not true. This isn't true. From the moment that we are born, we are surrounded by people, by influences, by voices, by narratives, by cultural pressures by stories and songs and they all shape the way that we think they shape the way that we feel they shape the way that we dream and imagine and fear and identify ourselves and how we love other people and so on and we're not just influenced as the bible points out here we are captivated by certain philosophies of life paul knew this He he was humble and honest enough to point out and recognize just how vulnerable every single one of us is. No matter how old you are or how educated you are or how you were raised or sort of what sort of like free thinking environment you were raised in, we are all extremely vulnerable. And the Bible points out how easy it is to get caught up in ways of thinking that aren't right, true, and beautiful. Look with me again in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. So we are not simply adopting mindsets when we change our thoughts. We are coming under control of some sort of process. We are being gripped. We are being captured by something or someone. And the imagery here is sort of the opposite of being planted. We are planted in Jesus Christ, but these Empty philosophies and deceits are seen here as taking us away or uprooting us or plucking us out, taking us captive. Back in our uh, downtown days when we were a whole like six or seven blocks from here, um, we tried to um, liven up the outside of our building and we put some planters out front. Do you guys remember these gray planters? It was a very sad, very sad thing. But we knew, we knew Stockton. So what we did was, was before we put dirt and plant in these planters, we drilled down in the concrete and we bolted them things straight into the concrete. They never went anywhere. But what we failed to plan for was how often people would uproot the plants. And we would show up some mornings and it's like all the plants are gone. And you see just a trail of soil going around the corner. Like, where did you go with, we know you didn't do anything with that. Like, where did you go with that plant? And then we built like trellises and uh, it was just all bad. People were putting cigarettes and all kinds of things in there. But what we underestimated was just like 
how often people would uproot these plants. And, and sadly, this hasn't just happened with flowers outside of our church, but sometimes with people inside of the church. Like the parable of the sower that we read of in the Gospels and like Mark 4, there are seeds that are planted that are devoured. There are seeds that are planted that grow up really quick, but they don't have roots and they wither away in the scorching heat. There are plants that grow, but then are choked out by the cares and concerns of this world. There will be these like evidences of growth, like, oh wow, the, the gospel's taking root and then it goes away. And it's saddening. But it's the reality for the kingdom of God, it's the reality for any church. And over the last 15 years as a church, one of the, the, the hardest things to watch has been seeing people who begin well. They're passionate for Jesus, they, they are growing in their understanding of the word, they can memorize scripture, they're showing up to Bible studies, they're here and they're serving, but then something takes them captive. And then all of a sudden the story changes and they're gone. And they're taken captive, whether it's by um, lifestyles or sometimes fringe, sort of pseudo-religious political beliefs uh, or the allure of success or the desire for autonomy or they're just gripped by doubts or just this general disdain towards Jesus. The, the reasons are often very different, but the, the outcome is the same sad thing. It was like, I, I, I thought you were growing and then you're gone. What happened? You see, what we see here is that we need deep roots in Jesus. And first of all, do not think that you are immune from this. It is so easy to think, well, it's like their, their problem. Every single one of us is sitting here thinking, well, that could never be me. But two years from now, that will be a very different story. So what Paul is saying here is that we need deep roots in Jesus, not just so that we grow, but because there will always be something or someone who is trying to uproot our faith. And so the deeper your roots, the more strength you will have to reject the falsehoods as they come. And here's why I believe that Paul is so adamant that we reject falsehood. It's because philosophies that depend on human effort and depend on human strength and depend on human wisdom are destined to enslave us. The stakes are high here. This is not a trivial thing. They're gonna give us this sort of illusion that we're in control. They're gonna make us feel like we are making ourselves a good person but all the while they're seeking to take us captive, to take us in its grips. Now Paul calls these falsehoods empty deceits. We don't know for sure, but he may be alluding to a Greek myth that was probably very well known in Colossae at this time. You're probably familiar with this myth and it's the myth of the Trojan horse, an empty hollow deceit. The story goes that this huge wooden horse, hollowed out wooden horse, was constructed by the Greeks and used to deceive the people of Troy so that they could gain entrance into their city, leading to their demise. And the interesting thing about the, the, what the soldiers did is they, they used an object that the Trojans believed to be sacred, the horse. They took their own religious symbol, hollowed it out, hid inside it, and welcomed themselves into the city through that empty deceit. And so likewise, falsehood, beliefs and narratives about God and the world and us, what they're gonna do is they're going to disguise themselves and they're gonna try to hide within what sounds and looks extremely sacred and familiar to us. 
It's going to be hidden in the God jargon. You may be able to like even assign some like scripture passages taken out of context to these things. They, they will likely have this sort of external appearance of godliness. Circumcision in the Old Testament or in, in the first century was one of those things that looks very godly. We see that in the Old Testament. Let's continue doing that. And so the question that we need to consider today is this. What are the falsehoods that we have welcomed into our church and into our lives? Those things that we may not notice now, but are actively plotting to siege us. He describes these in verse 8 like this. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So here, he shows us how we can test our faith. How we can answer that question appropriately. How we can test our beliefs and test our philosophies that are captivating us. Does our Christianity highlight human activity or God's sovereignty? What we believe, how we order our life, our Christian practices, does it make much of us or does it make much of Jesus Christ? Am I being driven by my own grit? Do I feel a sense of accomplishment and joy and fulfillment based on what I do for God or based on what Jesus has done for us? Is it about me or is it about God's grace? Paul continues in verse nine, for in him, speaking of who? Okay, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands that humans could never accomplish by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Another translation reads like this. So you also are complete through your union with Christ. You need to hear that today. You are complete through your union with Christ. Complete. Yeah, but like all these things I see in my life and all these failures and all these gaps. Yeah, God's working those out. But listen, you are complete. And so the question for us as a church is reality. Are we captivated by a vision of always needing more, always striving to obtain, always trying to become something bigger, something better, something more brilliant? Or are we captivated by the gospel, the old faithful gospel that says that through faith you are already complete in Jesus? I think about all the activity that we participate in the church, as a church. What are we proving? What are we proving? Are we proving that we find ourselves in a standing of justified before God, holy and complete in him, having everything that we'll ever need already through faith in Jesus Christ? That's a question that we'll need to continue to come back to as the years go on. But let's finally look at raised into freedom. Raised into freedom. Now, there's an opening scene from Les Mis where Jean Valjean, who is known as Prisoner 24601, I know that Pastor Jake knows this whole song from memory, he comes to the very end of his prison term, and uh, Javert says, you know, like, now, Prisoner 24601, your time is up and your parole's begun. You know what that means. And Jean Valjean says, yes, I mean, it means I'm free. 
And what's his, yes. And his response is, no. Follow the letter, your itinerary, this badge of shame that will follow you until the day that you die. Not so fast. You're not free. Religion in Colossae was beginning to sound a lot like this. Yes, you're a Christian. Yes, you believed in Jesus. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That does not mean that you're free. So you better follow the letter of the law, including Old Testament practices like circumcision, or you'll end up where you began. Live in fear, live under the the constant weight of obligation, live with a constant sense of shame and that debt hanging over your head, live with a constant sense that you're not yet complete, add more, add more, add more. In other words, stay stuck in the corn maze. And the sad reality, and I think a lot of us have learned this the hard way, is that this is a message that resounds 2,000 years later. But what Paul says here has to be heard. Verse 11, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses. And listen to these words. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What Paul is saying is that through faith in Jesus, we are raised into freedom. One that we could never, ever create for ourselves. This is what the cross and the empty tomb secured for us a way to be freed from the empty deceptions, a way to be liberated from the life of religious obligations, trying to always do more to earn God's love, a way to overcome death through his own death. We're even told here that he took the record of sin debt that was held against us and he canceled that debt. Now I know that canceling debt today means something very specific especially to college students. But I want, to, I want to distinguish here. He didn't just remove the debt by shuffling it to someone else to pay for it. He nailed it to the cross. The guilt that hung over us, the shame that hung over us, the sin debt that was ours was completely released and there hangs on the cross. And as we're told here, Jesus disarmed the enemy, removing all of the ammunition that hell has against us. Paul is describing Christianity as nothing less than a victory march in Jesus' resurrection from now into eternity. I attended a wedding uh, yesterday and they, they actually had everyone stand and sing a hymn, which was pretty amazing. And it was one of my favorite hymns, Before the Throne of God Above. And in the second verse, uh, there was a part where I was like, oh, this doesn't like fit your normal wedding vibes, but as we were singing, I was like, oh yes, it does. In the second verse, we sing this. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. When, when, when Satan and the forces of, of darkness come against us, what do we do? We look up to where our freedom is found. And so this entire 
cosmic triumph. And all that Jesus has accomplished for us leaves us with a question. Where else would we look to find freedom like this? Where else would we look? I think one of the reasons that people are plucked up in their faith or out of their faith is that they, cert, they, they, they reach a certain point in their life where they start to believe that Jesus is actually a threat to their freedom. That living for Jesus means that he is coming between them and the person that they one day want to be. But what this passage shows us is that the very opposite is true. Jesus is not a threat to our freedom. Jesus is the only way to truly experience freedom. The truth is that you're going to look at the Christian faith with suspicion. And you're going to keep Jesus at an arm's length. And you're going to see everything that we've talked about today and everything involved in the Christian life as a threat to your growth, as a threat to your progress, as a threat to your freedom until you realize what he's done for you in his death and resurrection. Everything he did was so that you and I could live free. And so what Paul says here is very, very clear. Live free by returning to Jesus. Step out of the maze. Abandon the labyrinth. Don't complicate this. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, keep on walking in him. Keep on walking in him. Amen? Let's pray.